All right, uh, good morning everybody. Welcome to Education Week. It's sure great to have you back. Can I just ask really quickly if there is someone in the room? Uh, I can get a thing of water. Uh, uh, anyway, someone say, oh, sure. Well, you guys are so accommodating. Like laser pointers, water, are you, are you sure about that? Oh, thank you very much. Well, let's see, when she comes back in, usually the speakers are given water too, so if we can replace that for you, I'll, I'll be sure to do so. So thank you very much, I, I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, thank you all for being here. It was really uh, hard last year not being together in person and really excited to hear that we were able to, to come back together again. Uh, and so I just wanted to point out, by the way, thank you all for, uh, for following the, uh, the recommendations of the university with masks. And I do want to point out that, um, uh, that the recommendation was that speakers, if sufficiently socially distanced, uh, were, were not uh, expected to wear masks. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, it was clear that I definitely endorse all the, uh, uh, the, the precautions that we're taking, uh, but that for the sake of the presentation, uh, that I personally won't be wearing masks this morning. I hope that that's okay with everybody. But in any case, welcome back. It's sure good to be with you. My name is uh, Dr. Matthew Gray. I'm a, an associate professor of ancient scripture here at Brigham Young University. And I'm very excited to be joining you this whole week for Education Week. Uh, as, as I'm sure you all know, there's a wonderful array of courses that are available throughout the week. Uh, I'm personally excited uh, on the Tuesday through Friday schedule of series uh, to be giving two series that might be interesting to you. One is going to be a series on the archaeology of Jerusalem during the last week of Jesus' life. So if you're interested in uh, the archaeology of Jerusalem in the first century, particularly as it relates to uh, the last two or three days of Jesus from the Gospels, uh, that's going to be a really fun class to look at. And then the second series I'll be doing on Tuesday through Friday is one that uh, I'm kind of interested to see how this goes. This is my first time pouring into the uh, topic of Jesus films. Uh, we're going to be doing a whole four-part series on the show called The Chosen. Uh, if you're at all interested in kind of the, the, the series called The Chosen, its interaction with scripture, how historically accurate is it, kind of celebrating its biblical storytelling. <laughs> if those are topics that are interesting to you, it would be great to see you uh, in class later in the week as well. But to begin, today on Monday is going to be a two-part series on a topic that I think is personally really interesting and exciting, although I recognize that this is by far the most historically oriented out of all the classes I'll be giving this week. In fact, my daughter and I, uh, as we were coming to uh, campus this morning, we're debating uh, how many people are going to show up at 8.30 in the morning to hear stories about uh, ancient Rome and Pompeii. Uh, we thought, well, it'd be some real historical nerds that would show up for this one. And uh, so it's really great to see all you fellow historical nerds. So thank you for, uh, for being here. I do hope that these topics are interesting to you as we look first at the history uh, and the archaeological traces of Jews in first century Rome and Pompeii. And in the second hour, where we'll do a similar approach uh, on the presence of early Christians in Rome and Pompeii. Now, just to give a little bit of background as to why I chose these lectures, I recognize that these topics might seem a little bit, uh, a little bit obscure. It's a pretty specific time and place. Uh, but this uh, two-part series of lectures actually comes from last year's Education Week that sadly was canceled. And if any of you were in the Salt Lake area last year, you might remember that at the beginning of 2020, that the Leonardo Museum in Salt Lake had a marvelous exhibit of artifacts from Pompeii. It was absolutely a, a, a wonderful uh, display of items that traveled from Italy to display uh, for the public. Uh, I don't know, if, did it, by any chance, did anybody get to see that? Oh, if you did, wonderful, that's great. Well, as part of the um, opening uh, kind of outreach for that exhibit, 
the Leonardo Museum had asked a few scholars in the area to come speak on different aspects of history and archaeology that might relate to the Pompeii exhibit or that might enhance the viewer's experience, give them a little bit more insights. And so I was really honored to be asked to give two lectures uh, for the Leonardo Pompeii display. Uh, the first one being the history of Jews in ancient Rome and ancient Pompeii. And the second one being the history of Christians. Uh, in the region as well. Uh, as some of you might know, my personal background and specialty is in the archaeology and history of early Judaism around the time of the New Testament. So these were topics that I'm, I'm personally fascinated by. I've been able to do some research in Italy on and off throughout my career. So I absolutely love Rome. I love Pompeii. You don't get a cooler archaeological site than Pompeii. And I'm just curious, has anyone been to Rome and or Pompeii? Oh, wonderful, which is probably why you showed up at 8.30 in the morning to hear this topic. So since most of you have been there, uh, I hope that this brings back great memories of pizza and pasta and gelato. Uh, and I hope it brings back some great memories of wonderful antiquities. Uh, and in particular, I hope that this is interesting to you uh, from a New Testament perspective. Because even though this is going to be heavily focused on history and archaeology of first century Rome and Pompeii, uh, the focus on Jews and Christians in these locations is the social and historical background for the second half of the New Testament. Think travels of Paul, the establishment of early Christian communities. So I hope that from various angles that this two-part series of lectures uh, is interesting and informative and even maybe hopefully uplifting and inspiring to you as well. So, um, oh, I might have actually, but I said I brought up the wrong one. That's, that's the second hour. All right, my bad. Let's try this one. There we go. Okay, we're going to start with Jews, first century Pompeii. So this is a topic, again, that's really, really fascinating to me. What I want to do, uh, before we start looking at the specific history and archaeological traces of Jews or Judeans, in first century Rome and Pompeii, I thought it would be helpful just to do a brief historical overview of the relationship between the Roman Republic, which would later become the Roman Empire, and Judea, this small province on the eastern part of the Mediterranean, which of course is the ancestral homeland of Judeans, who today we often call Jews. Uh, this, of course, is going to be the community that will be the ethnic, social, and religious background for the emergence of early Christianity as well, which we'll talk about in the second hour. So bear with me for the next maybe 10 minutes as we do a fairly quick survey of the historical interactions between Rome and Judea. Uh, and that'll, I think, establish a really helpful foundation for us then to appreciate the types of archaeological traces that give us insight into what was it like for this small ethnic minority group of Jews to live in the heart of the Roman Empire. And that's gonna be the focus of the, lexin, uh, the lecture today, the experience of an ethnic minority community of Jews in the heart of the Roman Empire. Well, to begin, the story of the relationship between Rome and Judea actually goes back to about the second century BC. <coughs> So we're talking about 150 or 160 years before Jesus and before the New Testament. Obviously, the Jewish community had been in Judea for centuries, but around the 2nd century BC, around the 160s or 150s, uh, for the first time, the growing Roman Republic 
which was centered in Italy, right, the Italian peninsula, started to have contact with this uh, community of Jews in Judea. The initial points of contact were actually uh, uh, the initiation of diplomatic relationships between the expanding Roman Republic, it hadn't become an empire yet, but it was on the way towards empire. But as the expanding Roman Republic began to move eastward through the areas of Greece and Asia Minor, at that time, Judea was an independent Jewish state called the Hasmonean Dynasty. For about 100 years, Judea was independent. A group of Jewish kings, a family of Jews, were on the throne in Judea called the Hasmoneans. And as the Hasmonean Dynasty in Judea were becoming established, they would establish diplomatic ties with the major empires uh, that surrounded them, including the Roman Republic. So that begins around one, the 160s BC, but by the 60s BC, and now we're just fast forwarding a little bit, I told you this would be a fast uh, survey of history. Um, by the 60s BC, for the first time, Judea becomes incorporated into the larger Roman Republic through the conquest of a Roman general named Pompey the Great. As you might remember from your Western Civ classes or your History Channel documentaries, uh, as the Roman Republic is expanding eastward, uh, generals like Pompey the Great are bringing their, the Roman legions through to, uh, Greece, Asia Minor, is Western Turkey, Central Turkey, and by the 60s BC, Pompey had led the Roman legions all the way as far south as Syria, which is just on the north of the uh, Judean border. And at that point, the Hasmonean dynasty in Judea had devolved into a civil war. And one of the groups who was uh, leading the civil war in Judea reached out to Pompey to say, hey, well, you're in the area with your legions. Will you come down to Judea, help us to win this civil war? And you always got to be careful what you ask for with the Romans, because the answer was an enthusiastic, of course. Uh, and so Pompey brings his legions down from Syria, puts an end to the Hasmonean civil war, but then decides to stay and declare Judea to now be part of the larger Roman Republic. So it was in 63 BC that the Hasmoneans lost their Judean independence, and Judea now becomes a, a part of the larger Roman world. So 63 BC marks the beginning of the Roman period of Jewish history. And so uh, while Pompey conquers Judea, makes it part of the larger Roman Republic, there's also going to be, as far as we can tell, some of the earliest uh, shifts of some Jews to actually go to the city of Rome. And some of those earliest Jews to go to Rome were actually slaves who were taken captive during Pompey's conquest of Judea and shipped back as slaves to Rome in the 60s BC. So it seems that some of the earliest roots of the Jewish community in ancient Roman Italy actually may have been in the form of slaves taken under the conquest of Pompey. Now having said that, I do want to emphasize that not all relations were oppressive. Sometimes based on the movies, we get this impression that uh, Romans were always the oppressor and Jews were always the oppressed. And that's not entirely true. Yes, indeed, there were some Jewish slaves who were brought to Judea as a result of Roman conquest. No question about that. But there were other Jewish circles who benefited from the Roman presence and who actually aligned themselves with the Roman presence. And some of those in exchanges happened even 20 years after the conquest. In the 40s BC, 
as Julius Caesar is conducting his Roman military campaign in Egypt, as it turns out, a fairly significant number of Jews uh, pledged themselves to fight on behalf of Julius Caesar in Egypt. So there is actually kind of a complex relationship between Jews and Romans with some oppression, but also some mutual advantage. In fact, as a result of the Judean support of Julius Caesar's armies in northern Egypt, Julius Caesar actually granted Jews republic-wide, granted Jews certain privileges. So Julius Caesar declared, for example, that Jews could have the legal right to worship according to their ancestral customs. So Jews were never forced by Romans to you know, worship the religion of Rome or the, the Roman pantheon. They were granted uh, exemptions in taxation. They were even granted exemptions from forced military service. Not all conquered peoples had those privileges. So what I'm saying is that it was a complex relationship between Rome and Judea from the very start. I just wanted to start with those stories to give a sense of the larger Roman world and the place of Judeans in that Roman world. Now, uh, shift, shifting closer now again to 40 BC. Oh, yes, brother. Oh, sure. Thanks, I should probably use my power, the PowerPoint. Uh, thanks for the, 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 uh, the laser pointer. Okay, so here's obviously the Italian peninsula. So there's Rome. Uh, in a few minutes, we'll go a little further to the south of Rome, down here to Pompeii, right? Uh, so this is modern-day Italy. This is modern-day Greece, which in antiquity was, uh, northern Greece was Macedonia, Attica, and Achaia. Uh, this is Asia Minor on the west coast of Turkey. Uh, obviously, modern-day Turkey today, right? That was a part of the larger Roman world. Syria is still Syria, and Judea is the modern state of Israel and the Palestinian territory. So Gaul, yeah, would be down here. Okay, this is southern France, the northern France. Germania, right, and So those are some of the. Uh, Spain, yeah, that's all Spain. Yeah, exactly right. Spain and Portugal. So yeah, so that's that's the modern map overlaid with the uh, the ancient first century Roman map. So thanks for giving us the opportunity to clarify for uh, those who are interested in that. Okay. So now what I want to do is kind of shift to another series of events that are really critical in the relationship between the Roman Empire and first century Jews. Uh, and this next event is going to be in 40 BC, when the Roman Republic realizes that they can't govern Judea directly. They just did not yet have the resources or the political inclinations to invest vast amounts of infrastructure and vast amounts of bureaucracy into Judea. So in the year 40 BC, for a few reasons, the Roman Republic decided to appoint a client king, a local client king, to rule Judea on their behalf. And that client king would be a young, politically savvy military man named Herod, who we later would call Herod the Great. So Herod the Great's career begins in his, in his 20s. Uh, as he is brought to Rome to be appointed king of Judea or king of the Jews on behalf of the Roman Senate. Uh, and so this is a fun story to tell. Uh, one of the things that I love doing when I go to Rome is uh, I love kind of doing my own little personal uh, tour of Jewish history in Rome, along with all the other great Roman uh, sites and artifacts. And it's fascinating that when you're in the Roman Forum, remember that Herod the Great, as a young man, had been brought to the Roman Forum. Here's the ruins of the Roman Forum that you'd see today if you went, and was literally marched right down the Via Sacra, the main road through the Roman Forum, and was brought to the Roman Senate House, a building called the Curia, uh, which is 
still standing today. It's been restored today. So if you've been to the Roman Forum, you probably visited the Senate House or the Korea, where all sorts of the political affairs of the Roman Empire had occurred, including the appointment of Herod the Great. So when you're in the Korea, don't, don't forget that Herod the Great was in uh, the first century iteration of that structure where he was appointed to be king of Judea or king of the Jews by the Roman Senate. Uh, now this is the restored building that you would see today if you went to Rome. Uh, here is a 3D model reconstruction of what the Senate building probably looked like uh, when Herod the Great would have been appointed king there uh, and then sent back to his province. So if you've, uh, if you've been to Rome, uh, it's kind of fun to look at a map of the Roman Forum. This is the best one I could find online that kind of showed how it was laid out today. Uh, but if you're in the Roman Forum, here's of course the Colosseum. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Here's the Palatine Hill, where the Emperor's Palace would eventually be established. And this way down here is called the Via Sacra, or the Sacred Way. And it's along this uh, central hub of ancient Rome that the Senate House was located, right there, that's number 15, the Curia. Uh, that's where Herod the Great was appointed King of Judea. And then right after that appointment, he walked up this monumental flight of stairs to the top of what's called the Capitoline Hill, which is where today the modern Capitoline Museum is located. But in antiquity, that was the temple of, the, uh, the, uh, of Jupiter Optimus Maximus, which is a great name. It's the title of the, of the supreme god of the Roman Republic, uh, Jupiter Optimus Maximus, whose temple was located right up here where the Capitoline Museum is today. But in the time of the first century BC, Herod the Great would have walked up in a procession up the stairs that led to the temple of Capitoline Jupiter, and there he would have offered a sacrifice uh, on behalf of Judea for uh, the Roman god Jupiter Capitoline, excuse me, Jupiter Optimus Maximus. And here's what the, uh, that temple would have looked like when Herod would have walked up there. So from a Jewish perspective, even though Jew, uh, Herod was half Jewish himself, uh, Herod's reign is off to a really interesting start, having been appointed by a Roman governing body and having offered sacrifices to the supreme deity of the Roman pantheon, and then he's sent back to Judea to assert his rule as a Roman client king over the Jewish homeland. So uh, that gives you just a sense of kind of the complex relationships between Rome and Judea, and even between Judea and some of its own rulers. Now, to finish this historical survey, this is the quick part where I just wanted to hit a few road marks and then we'll turn to the archeology span of this fascinating topic. Uh, kind of the last two historical overview slides that I wanna share with you is what happens next? Well, with Herod the Great's reign, Judea was integrated into the Roman Empire economically, politically, and culturally. Again, sometimes we get this impression that all Jews in Judea felt like they were oppressed by this brutal Roman regime? Not entirely true. There may have been some nationalistic Jews who felt that way, but politically, Judea was very much integrated into the Roman world, uh, partially by governors and partially by client kings, like the later Herodians. Those later Herodians would build Romanized cities and civic structures, and they would even send their children to Rome to be educated. So throughout the entire New Testament period, if you were to travel to Rome, there you would find Jewish communities, you would find Jewish diplomats, you would find Jewish bureaucrats who were you know, kind of working with the diplomatic corps, and you would find the children of Jewish aristocratic families who had been sent to Rome by their, their families 
to be educated and, uh, and to learn more about Roman culture and so forth. So it was a very fascinating integration uh, in, throughout the New Testament period. Yes, brother, very quickly. What was there before that was originally the Hasmonean dynasty, uh, and then between the fall of the Hasmonean dynasty and the appointment of Herod the Great, Judea was simply under Roman administrative control. Exactly. So the Romans pull out all of their armies, they pull out all of their administrators, leaving Herod the Great and his military and security forces to rule on behalf of them. And thank you for uh, you know, allowing us to clarify. Okay. Uh, so I'll just point out very quickly that during this whole New Testament period that while Rome and Judea have this fascinating complex relationship, uh, that throughout the larger Roman Republic, which uh, had during the New Testament period now become the Roman Empire, uh, there are several communities of what are called diaspora Jews. The word diaspora literally means the dispersion or, or the scattering meaning that Jews, ethnically, were bound to their homeland in Judea. That was their ethnic homeland, where they were the ethnic majority, right? But during the Roman period, different Jewish communities, for different reasons, uh, economic reasons, for trade, for business purposes, uh, for all sorts of different possible, possible scenarios, would have left their ancestral homelands and created these small ethnic minority communities within the cities of the Roman world. Okay, so by the time of the New Testament, almost any city that you would have gone into, whether it be in Turkey or Asia Minor, Greece or Macedonia, or Rome itself, would have had a small ethnic minority community of Jews living there. Okay? Uh, and it's fascinating to explore the experience of these ethnic minority communities because it was, it was a little mixed, right? In the sense that, um, on the one hand, these ethnic minority communities of Jews wanted to naturally fit in. They wanted to have economic trade and good relations with their neighbors. But on the other hand, they also wanted to maintain their cultural heritage. So as a, as a minority community in these cities, they're still trying to establish small synagogues. Or they're still trying to keep kosher in a larger Roman world. They're still circumcising their baby boys. And they're still trying to read Torah, even though they're immersed in this larger Roman world. And what you're going to find among these diaspora Jewish communities is that there are varying degrees of, uh, of acculturation, meaning some Jews acculturated very well with their larger Roman world. Uh, some Jews were fairly well accepted by their neighbors. But other Jewish communities, depending on the city, it's almost a city-by-city city case, uh, experienced some anti-Judean sentiment. As we all know from the modern world, ethnic minority communities aren't always treated the best by their host culture, right? Uh, well, ancient Jews and the diaspora had the exact same dynamics. Some fit in very well and enjoyed the acculturation process, and others uh, not so much. Well, the anti-Judean sentiments that did exist in some cities of the Roman Empire was uh, dramatically increased by the last historical event that I want to mention before we turn to the archeology, span which is that in the 60s AD, so this would have been about 30 years or so, 40 years after this, uh, this is the period of the first Jewish revolt against Rome. So between the year 66 AD and the year 73 AD, the Judean nationalists who did resent Roman rule in Judea 
succeeded in igniting a revolt that sapped the resources of the Roman Empire. It was a massive military campaign as Jewish rebels. Remember, some Jews were very loyal to Rome, but those Jews in Judea who were not ignited a massive revolt against the empire in Judea, uh, succeeded initially, and that forced the Romans to bring in numerous legions to, to put down the revolt, and ultimately the Jewish revolt ended in total destruction. I actually total destruction, but massive destruction. For example, in the year 70 AD, the Jerusalem temple was destroyed by the Roman legions as a result of the revolt. Um, so that, that's what you see here, an artistic reconstruction of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple by the Roman legions, who eventually were able to raise the Antonia fortress and destroy the Temple Mount. Now in that process, uh, obviously there were going to be more prisoners taken captive by the Romans, so in the first revolt, by the end of the revolt, we see more Judeans sent back to Rome as slaves. Okay, so this is going to be our second influx of Jewish slaves sent from Judea to Rome. The first one being in the 60s BC under Pompey, the second one being in the 70s AD under the Roman general Titus. Uh, but again, not all is slavery, because as it turns out, in addition to Jewish prisoners being taken captive and sent to Rome as slaves, and we'll see some of them in the archaeological record here in a moment, uh, there were also others, who, other Jews who went to Rome as well, like Josephus. Josephus was a young Jewish historian during the revolt, who uh, at first was part of the Jewish forces against Rome, but uh, seeing the writing on the wall, ended up defecting, uh, joining the Romans, and by the end of the revolt, had actually gone to Rome as a member of the imperial court to be a court historian of the Roman Empire, Vespasian, later Titus. So anyway, fascinating blend of Jewish slaves, Jewish uh, uh, members of the royal court. Uh, this is all part of the very rich dynamic of Jewish presence in Italy during roughly the time of the New Testament. Okay, so with that historical overview, and that took a little bit longer than I was hoping, but I just wanted to give you a sense of the intricate relationships between Rome and Judea going all the way back to about 150 BC and going all the way through the New Testament period. So uh, let's now go spend the rest of our time in Rome and Pompeii with that historical background. Well, going back to Rome in the aftermath of the first Jewish revolt is where we start to see some really fascinating archaeological traces of Jewish presence and also anti-Jewish sentiment in wake of the revolt, which obviously, as you can imagine, turned some Roman sentiment against this ethnic minority. Right? They just revolted in their homeland, and you can imagine some of the social tensions that would exist as a result of this. Well, as it turns out, some of the earliest and most interesting archaeological traces of these dynamics uh, come in the form of imperial propaganda in the aftermath of the First Revolt. You see, the imperial house that, that, uh, that put down the revolt was a house called the Flavian Dynasty. And they were brand new. They were not descended from Julius Caesar or the Augustan families, uh, which means that this new house of emperors, Vespasian and his sons Titus and Domitian, uh, had to prove to the Roman world that they had legitimacy as the new house of Roman emperors. Uh, and so part of what they did was they capitalized on their recent success in Judea by producing all sorts of anti-Judean and pro-Flavian propaganda that would distribute throughout the empire. For example, uh, their coins. 
It seems that some of the coins that the Flavian dynasty mints highlights their success in capturing Judea, right? In fact, these are some of the coins that were minted by the Flavians just after the first revolt. And you can see here on the left, this is a gold coin minted by the Flavians where you have Judea personified as a captive woman tied up against a palm tree. It seems that palm trees were a symbol of Judea in the first century Roman world, okay? So here we have captive Judea. You can see the inscription on the coin, Judea. Here's another coin that would have had the, the, the face of the Emperor Vespasian on it on the one side, but on the other side again, here's captive Judea. Here she is as a personified woman bound to the base of a, a palm tree, symbol of Judea, with the Roman overlord, the Roman conqueror standing over her, and the inscription, you can see it in Latin here, Judea capta, which is captive Judea, right? And the Flavian dynasty issued these coins to distribute around the empire as propaganda to show, look at our great success in Judea in capturing, uh, in, in putting down the Judean revolt, and look, therefore, at the great um, military success that validates our rule uh, as the first non-Julio-Claudians to rule in the empire. So anyway, it's really fascinating to see the kind of the propaganda efforts, including these coins, reflecting the situation in Judea during the Roman world. The other moment of Flavian propaganda to celebrate the, success, the Roman success in destroying Judea, conquering Judea, uh, was a Roman triumphal procession that was held, a huge massive victory parade that was held in downtown Rome after the fall of Jerusalem and after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. This is a fascinating moment of not only Flavian propaganda, but of insights into the aftermath of the First Revolt. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was present in Rome for this event, recorded in great detail what this celebration parade in downtown Rome looked like. Really, really interesting. Uh, Josephus tells us that the, the, the victory parade, which you can see uh, in other Flavian coins here, right? You can see there's be your victorious uh, Emperor Vespasian and Titus, uh, right? There's, and then there's the four horses that are pulling the imperial chariot, probably where the images of the four horsemen of the apocalypse comes from, actually. It's the book of Revelation is written in the Roman context. Uh, and there are there, the four horses pulling the victorious Roman general Titus in this great military parade that Josephus says started uh, in kind of outside of the forum and worked its way through the various theaters and circus facilities of Rome. So imagine all of Rome turning out, packing the theaters, and this victory parade going through the theaters and through the circus and just kind of throughout Rome so that the entire population of the Roman capital can see and celebrate the great victory of the Romans. Apparently, uh, parts of the Roman army were there, so, so members of the Roman legions were there with Vespasian and Titus at their head, the victorious emperor and general, his son. Uh, there were Jewish prisoners of war who were part of this parade, so, so people of Rome could actually see the captive Jews from Judea on display. And Josephus talks about how they even built these multi-leveled floats Right, imagine these massive floats. You know how we do like our Pioneer Parade floats, right, Durham, right? But imagine doing multi-level floats, and on those floats uh, would be labels of all of the major battles of the campaign in Judea, and you'd have reenactors on the floats of uh, fighting each other, kind of reenacting the battles with Jewish prisoners who were captive during those battles bound on the floats, right? And so like you had these floats going by, highlighting with these reenactments 
uh, all of the major battles of the campaigns in Judea, going through the theaters, through the circus, and then finally all the way into the forum. And at the conclusion, the Romans display the spoils from the Jerusalem temple. The menorah, the table of showbread, some of the sacred items that were held in the temple to the Jewish God in Jerusalem were actually put on display and were part of this victory parade as the spoils of war. Uh, and the parade will eventually culminate in the forum where some of the Jewish leaders of the revolt, including one man named Simon Bargiora, was then executed in downtown Rome as the culminating event of this triumphal parade. So the Romans knew pageantry, uh, and the Flavian dynasty heavily used this kind of pageantry to celebrate their victory and to vindicate their own rule as new emperors of Rome. Um, one of my other favorite things to do in Rome while I'm there is part of my kind of Jewish history of Rome experience that I like to personally have uh, is I like to, every time I go and when I bring students, they, this is always a long march, but I like to actually follow the route of the victory parade and just kind of hit the moments and imagine what it would have been like uh, to do this. For example, we're fairly certain that this victory parade, number of floats, the Roman generals, the victorious Roman soldiers, Jewish captives, and the spoils from the temple, that whole parade seems to have worked its way through the theater of Marcellus, which is right on the Tiber River. Today, it's, uh, you can see the ruins of the uh, external part of the theater. Uh, internal, they have apartments and a really great uh, pasta place that is now inside of it. Uh, but nevertheless, it seems like the Victory Parade worked its way through the theater. So imagine the theater packed with spectators. So they got to see the parade go through. Uh, the parade then seemed to make its way down the Tiber through the Circus Maximus. If you've ever been to Rome, you've probably been through that, that one of the wonderful ruins of the Circus Maximus, this massive uh, area that was once used for horse and chariot races. And well, in this case, it was packed with spectators, uh, and the Victory Parade went right down the middle of it as well. But here's what you would see today the Palatine Hill, uh, where the emperors had their palace, was up here. The Victory Parade would go right down the middle of the Circus Maximus. Here's a glimpse of what it would have looked like in the first century. Okay, so imagine this packed with spectators. Here comes the victory parade through one gate. Here come the floats, and the victorious <laughs> soldiers, the captive Jewish prisoners, the spoils of war. Through the other gate, they would have turned left. <coughs> it's another they would have gone around the Imperial Palace. That's Palatine Hill. Yeah. They would have turned left. Uh, so I'm kind of, kind of dragging our students through. This is kind of fun. Uh, and they would have gone around the Palatine Hill, up towards the area where the Colosseum would eventually be built. Contrary to your Hollywood movies, the Colosseum was not built yet. Uh, but they would have gone here, they would have turned left down the Via Sacra, and they would have gone right down the middle of the Forum where Simon Barjora, the leader of the Jewish revolt, would have been executed right downtown. Well, at the culmination of that parade, after the execution of the Jewish leadership of the revolt, the vessels of the Jerusalem Temple, the menorah, the table of showbread, some of the other sacred items that the Romans had plundered from the temple and brought back to Rome as the spoils of war, were then displayed in a newly built temple by the Roman, Vespasian, or Roman Emperor Vespasian. It's a temple that he ironically called the Temple of Peace, with the claim that he brought peace to the empire by putting down the Judean revolt. And on display in the Temple of Peace uh, were the temple items. It's kind of a fun Indiana Jones story, like history of the Jewish temple artifacts, but we know for at least for a while they were deposited and on display in the, uh, the Flavian Temple of Peace. Yes, sir. 
No, the ark was long gone. That, that was long gone by the end of the Old Testament period. So these are the other temple items from Herod's temple uh, in Jerusalem, the second temple. Now, unfortunately, the Temple of Peace is not there today, but if you're walking around, there's a subway station that's right next to it. So if, if you don't kind of know what you're looking for, at least you can take your students to the spot of where the menorah was once displayed. Uh, but it's just a really busy intersection and a subway station now. So, but anyway, it's not there to be seen today. But the other two items that I want to mention before we leave Rome and then go to Pompeii is um, uh, two really critical uh, uh, architectural monuments that were left by the Flavians to commemorate the uh, victory parade and their success in Judea. The, one of the most um, interesting ones, of course, is going to be what's called the Arch of Titus, and the other is going to be the Colosseum itself, or technically referred to as the Flavian Amphitheater, both of which were set up by the Flavians to celebrate their victory in Judea. The Arch of Titus, let's start with that first, is the smaller of the two, but in some ways visually kind of the cooler, because this Arch of Titus was set up on the Via Sacra, right on the path where the Victory Parade went through, and they set up this arch to commemorate the parade. In fact, they on one side go into the arch, you can see on the inside of the interior, you can see the parade itself. So there's Titus, uh, surrounded by Nike, the goddess of victory, uh, and Titus is being pulled, the victorious general Titus is being pulled by the four horses of the imperial chariot. Again, probably the, uh, where John the Reverend later gets his four horsemen of the apocalypse imagery, this conquering Roman imperial symbol. Uh, and he's surrounded by his victorious troops. So you can see them coming in on the one side, and on the other side of the arch's interior, you get this really uh, just amazingly important uh, relief of the victorious Romans bringing in the artifacts from the Jerusalem temple. This is literally the closest we're gonna to get to a first century Polaroid shot of what the parade was like and what it was like to see the Jewish temple items on display in that parade. So you can see here, for example, you see the menorah once stood in the Jerusalem temple. You can see the table of showbread, right, where the loaves of bread and the flagons of wine once stood. You can see the trumpets that were probably used for the Jewish feasts in the Jerusalem temple. So you can see these signs that, unfortunately, they've all worn away, so we don't know what the signs said, but presumably they labeled these various items that viewers could see in this Roman Polaroid what that parade was like. I'll just say really quickly, it's kind of fun. In the last few years, a colleague of mine uh, was able to go up to Rome and do some really close scientific work on the Arch of Titus and found that there were actually, you can't see them with the naked eye, if you get up close with some scientific uh, uh, instruments, you can actually find the remains of colored pigments of paint. Meaning this was originally painted, and based on the very few surviving pigments of paint, uh, my colleague uh, Stephen Fine reconstructed the original painting of the archetypes like this, reminding us that the Roman world that we're used to, which is all paintless and very white from its statuary and the marble, was actually very vibrant in its colors in the ancient world before those painting, uh, painting is faded. So this is a, a, a really interesting guess of a reconstruction of what the coloring of the Arch of Titus plaque, or relief, what it once looked like, with the Victorian Roman soldiers with their victory wreaths, uh, carrying the spoils of the Judean temple, table of showbread, trumpets, the menorah, and this is what the parade would have been like going through the Roman Forum. Well, the, uh, the other uh, item that, and this is really fun, I don't know if many people who go to Rome today realize the really interesting connection between Rome's most iconic uh, architectural feature, the Colosseum, uh, the connection between the Colosseum and the first Jewish revolt. As it turns out, there is a very important connection. Uh, and for centuries, this connection was not obvious,
But a few uh, years ago, uh, there was a marble inscription that was discovered in connection with the Colosseum that uh, fascinatingly had an inscription in Latin. But do you notice these little holes? These little holes, as it turns out, uh, a, a scholar spot 15, 20 years ago had realized these holes were actually uh, places where uh, metal letters, like little brass letters, could be inserted into the, the marble frame. Uh, and even though it was later rewritten on with the current inscription, uh, really fascinating sleuthing work uh, was about able to take the holes, which once held various letters, and reconstruct the letters based on the position of the holes. And based on that reconstruction, reconstructed the inscription that was originally attached to the Colosseum. And guess what the original inscription on the Colosseum read? It read that the Emperor Titus Caesar Vespasian Augustus ordered this new amphitheater to be built from the proceeds of the sale of the loot, or the booty. Well, in the Flavian period, the only loot or booty that would have been captured that could have funded a project like this was the Jerusalem Temple Treasury. It now seems that the spoils of war captured by the Romans from the Jerusalem Temple Treasury actually were brought back to Rome and used to fund the building of the Colosseum. So the Colosseum and the Arch of Titus both stood as architectural monuments towards the Flavian victory in Judea. So kind of a fascinating connection between the Colosseum uh, and the first Jewish revolt, which seems to have funded the Colosseum based on the Roman uh, spoils. Okay, well that's, some, that's uh, some really fun, I think very interesting archaeological material that you can see in Rome next time we're all able to go, hopefully uh, sooner than later. Uh, so I strongly encourage you to just to remember your moments of Jewish uh, experience there in Rome between Herod the Great and the Flavian um, suppression of the first Judean revolt. Those are both kind of interesting. Of course, after the long after the revolt, there were more Judeans in Rome. A Jewish community continued to grow in Rome in subsequent centuries of both slaves and non-slaves, members of the imperial court, and even by the third and fourth century, there were synagogues and even Jewish catacombs. Uh, so the Jewish community in Rome continued to grow and develop well into uh, subsequent centuries. So it's kind of a, a fascinating story there. But in the time we have left, it looks like we've got, um, I don't know, about 15, 20, 15 minutes um, We can now turn to the site of Pompeii. Uh, so this is a really interesting part of the story of Jews in first century Italy. So while everything that we're talking about is happening up in Rome, a hundred miles to the south in a region called Campania, and this is going to be the area where Pompeii and Herculaneum are both located in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius, uh, Naples, ancient Neapolis, obviously this is the Bay of Naples area here, okay? Well this whole area called Campania in the ancient Roman period, uh, also, as it turns out, had a really interesting Jewish presence of small minority groups living in cities. And we know from the writings of Josephus that, that it includes Judean aristocrats who had resettled there, uh, that there were Judean slaves that were brought into slavery there. So again, a very mixed dynamic in the Pompeii, Naples area of first century Jews. And there's varying degrees of acculturation and uh, assimilation and adaptation. I'll play some of these, and there's also varying degrees of Roman toleration and anti-Judean sentiment all in this area. Now, uh, I actually have way more than I can share in the, ne in the next 12 minutes that we have left. Uh, we go to 9.25, right? Yeah, we have a few minutes left here. Um, 
Well, as it turns out, archaeologically, some of the most interesting artifacts and items uh, relating to Jews in this area from the first century come in the forms of surviving inscriptions. For example, here's one that's really interesting. It's in the Naples Archaeological Museum. If you ever get down to Naples uh, and are able to work your way through the crazy traffic downtown and get to the Archaeological Museum, which is totally worth your time, uh, there's a whole hall full of ancient uh, tomb inscriptions. One of which, you can see here on the left, seems to be the tomb of a young woman, probably in her late teens or early 20s, who, were, who was brought from Jerusalem to Italy as a slave in wake of the revolt. So she was one of the slaves that were brought back. And when she was brought back, sold into slavery in the Naples area, or the Neapolis area, uh, she apparently is then married by the master who bought her, uh, and then she died when she was 25. She died as a very young woman. Um, but this inscription is fascinating. Her name was Claudia Aster, which is like, seems to be the Latin version of the word Esther, the, the Hebrew name Esther. So her name is Claudia, which is a great good Roman Latin name, Esther. So she's a Jewish woman who was a prisoner from Jerusalem. Uh, and her husband, who seems to have bought her and then married her, uh, was an imperial freedman who ended up uh, creating this, this tomb inscription for her when she died at the age of 25. So fascinating, it's a little glimpse, it's not a lot. We don't know almost anything about this woman other than the Jewish prisoner taken as a slave, married by a, a Roman imperial freedman, and was, uh, was honored by her husband after she died. So all sorts of fascinating cultural things to unpack there with that particular inscription, and that was found at uh, Naples. There are similar inscriptions found elsewhere, but for time's sake, let me uh, move on. Um, in Herculaneum, there are a few interesting inscriptions that uh, have similar relationships to Jews. Uh, Herculaneum, of course, is the sister site to Pompeii. Uh, while Pompeii was destroyed with the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the year 79, and all of the ash from the mountain buried Pompeii, all of the steaming hot mud from the mountain came off of the west side of the mountain and encased Herculaneum. So if you go to Pompeii, you have to go to the sister site of Herculaneum as well. It's just as amazing. It's a little smaller, but absolutely amazing. Well, in Herculaneum, there were also found inscriptions, just a few inscriptions, not many, but a few inscriptions that seem to indicate that uh, the Jewish slaves, particular Jewish slave women, uh, were also brought to Herculaneum, were bought, and may have also been integrated into the Roman families that purchased them and that they served for the rest of their life. This particular woman is a woman named Maria, which probably the Jewish name Miriam, Mary, who was a slave woman in Herculaneum, shortly before the eruption of Vesuvius, who there's a little inscription that indicates that uh, she was sent by her master, who was a Roman, to offer a vow to Venus on behalf of her master. Can you imagine a Jewish woman being forced by her master to offer a sacrifice or a vow on behalf of her master to a Roman god? It gives you a little bit of a glimpse into uh, what life must have been like for, in this case, slaves of this ethnic minority community in Rome. Uh, there's another inscription that references David. We don't have time to talk about that. We really want to get to Pompeii in our last 10 minutes. So in our last 10 minutes, let's look at Pompeii. If you've ever been to Pompeii, you know that Pompeii is one of the most remarkable archaeological sites anywhere. I mean, it's an entire Roman city that was literally uh, buried in ash and that's preserved in a, at a standstill. So it's an archaeological, I mean, obviously it would have been a human tragedy and a dis that disaster, but an archaeological uh, paradise. I mean, it's amazing the amount of insights it gives into daily life and civic life, and it's an absolutely remarkable site. 
Well, from the very beginning of the excavations of Pompeii, there was always an interest in the question, were there Jews in Pompeii? In the next hour, we'll look at the question, were there Christians in Pompeii? Uh, well, from the very beginning, there was a lot of interest in the presence of, the possible presence of Jews. And so, uh, from the very early excavations, all the way up to the modern day, there's always kind of keeping your eye on, are there any traces of a Jewish presence in Pompeii? And as a result, uh, you can go online, type in, were there Jews in Pompeii, and you're going to see a wide variety of answers. Okay? There are some who believe that there were tons of Jews in Pompeii, that there were synagogues in Pompeii. There are others who believe that there were no Jews in Pompeii at all. These are what we call the maximalist and the minimalist views. Uh, some said that there were lots of Jews, some said there were no Jews. Uh, and so scholars have been really divided on this for many, many years. Uh, and it's just within the last few years that I think, um, as always, hopefully uh, moderation wins out. And the more moderate approach, which I think many scholars are starting to embrace, is, well, OK, let's, let's take a middle ground position. There definitely is not evidence for a large, robust Jewish community in Pompeii. Some of those sensationalistic claims are way overblown. Uh, but at the same time, we can't say that there were no Jews in Pompeii, because there might actually be some interesting evidence for at least some Jewish presence in the city. Uh, if you go on tours, uh, you will often hear the more sensational version of this. Uh, you'll hear tour guides, but just kind of flood in Pompeii over here, tour guides talk about, oh, look at all the great Jewish artifacts that are in Pompeii, uh, whether it be um, uh, art that's in Pompeii. That, so, oh, look, this is the Jewish story of Jonah. And this is the Jewish story of Solomon. And uh, as you hear the uh, tour guides talk about uh, more sensationalistic interpretations, those are probably not the case. So my guess is that those are probably just normal Roman scenes. And, and our enthusiasm to see Judaism in Pompeii, we're probably overreading that a little bit. Same thing with these statues. And definitely, if a tour guide tells you that there's a Star of David in Pompeii that shows ancient Jewish presence, that is totally not the case. Uh, but let's not talk about that stuff. Let's talk about what is there legitimately. Because as it turns out, there is a few legitimate items that do shed some fascinating glimpses of insight into what the Jewish experience in a city like Pompeii have been. Some of these are more interesting than others. There's one house, for example, in Pompeii that has an indecipherable Aramaic graffito. Unfortunately, because it's indecipherable, we don't know what it said, but it's in Aramaic. Enough letters survive that someone wrote Aramaic, which was the, the spoken language of Judeans in the first century. Um, so I wish we could say more, but it does suggest, okay, someone is in Pompeii who can speak the Judean language of the homeland. Uh, there's another home in Pompeii that has the word inscribed on the lintel, Aram, which is a Hebrew word. That is really interesting. It's, depending on how they transliterated it into Latin, it could either be Hera, meaning the word doomed to destruction, kind of interesting, or the word Kerem, which is vineyard in Hebrew. Not entirely sure scholars are a little bit divided on the significance of that particular inscription, so we don't know exactly what that means. But again, just a little bit of a trace that some Jewish person who lived in this home, for some reason, wrote a Hebrew word on the lintel. Now, uh, for the time that we have left, I want to actually take it to the more interesting one. Uh, by far the most interesting uh, traces of evidence in Pompeii for Jewish presence are a series of Jewish names that are found in graffiti scattered throughout the city. And as you know, if you've ever been to Pompeii, there is graffiti everywhere. There's an entire sub-study of Pompeian studies, Pompeian research, that focuses on the graffiti of Pompeii. Fascinating insights into daily life 
Well, among the thousands and thousands of graffiti in Pompeii are a few Semitic names, usually in the context of slaves, meaning graffiti, someone etched on a wall referring to a slave of some kind. Some of these slaves had Jewish names, again suggesting that in the aftermath of the first Jewish revolt, some Jewish slaves were brought to Pompeii and thus were part of the daily life fabric of um, this city before it was destroyed in the year 79 AD. For example, we have a few Marthas, okay, probably a Jewish uh, name. Right? We have two, at least two women named Martha. Between three to four women named Maria or Mary, Miriam. We've got one Jewish guy named Jonas and another guy named Jesus or Yeshua. Okay, so not a lot to go on, but between these this handful of inscriptions, really fascinating glimpse into the variety of Jewish experiences there. Uh, here's an inscription in a pretty wealthy home uh, where other slaves are making fun of their fellow slave, Martha. So here's a Jewish woman, probably taken captive after the Jewish revolt, and now she served as a slave in a pretty wealthy Roman household. And it seems like she didn't even fit in very well among the other slaves, because in the slave quarters of this very wealthy home, the other slaves joked that the, the um, that her dining place, or her triclinium, was actually the latrine, right? Uh, I'm crude Pompeian humor, that's not actually anywhere near as crude as it gets at Pompeii. But, um, <laughs> but it's just a suggestion that, uh, what would it have been like for a Jewish woman taken from her homeland, uh, and is now forced to serve as a slave in a bustling Roman household, right? where maybe the other slaves don't even fully uh, consider her to be integrated among them. But that's really interesting glimpse. Uh, in some cases, we have not time to go through these in detail, but I'll just tell you really quick. We have uh, uh, some women who were forced into uh, textile work. Apparently, some Jewish slaves were brought to textile work in Pompeii. We have a few inscriptions that indicate Jewish women being forced to do that. Uh, we have uh, at least one, maybe a few Jewish women who were forced into prostitution in Pompeii. Uh, in one case, we even know the price that her master set for her. Uh, and so this woman was probably taken captive in the Jewish revolt, brought to Pompeii. Her master decided to uh, put her services up for sale as a prostitute. So this Jewish woman named Maria, or Miriam, uh, was actually, her, her going price was uh, two and a half copper coins, which is basically the price of a loaf of bread. So it was a very cheap prostitute at that. So kind of gives you another glimpse into some of the, the real traumatic, difficult experiences of this type of demographic. Uh, okay, we have others as well. Uh, we've just on time. I wanted to get in our last two minutes. I wanted to get to, uh, there's a Judean gladiator that's possible. Uh, that's kind of fascinating. There's one inscription that it seems that a gladiator named Jesus, or Yeshua, uh, seems to have written an inscription on a gladiator wall making fun of another gladiator for, uh, for being a little wimpy. Uh, so it's kind of fun to imagine that, is it, well, not fun, but it's fascinating to imagine. Uh, could some Jewish men who were brought into slavery after the revolt have been forced into gladiatorial combat? The answer is yes very possible, both from archaeological and perhaps literary evidence as well. In fact, some scholars have even suggested that we've found the helmet of one of a Jewish gladiator that was forced to fight at Pompeii. And this is thought because, remember the symbol of Judea, the palm tree, with the Judea captive coins? That's the symbol of this particular gladiator's helmet that was discovered at Pompeii. Is it possible that this was a Jewish gladiator that was forced into that position after the war? The answer is, yeah, that's very possible. Don't know for sure, but intriguing this possibility. Uh, a couple other interesting things I want to the, the final conclusion is uh, uh, there's even possible evidence that some Jews, probably Jewish slaves in Pompeii, were trying to keep kosher. Even though they're slaves, they can still have some uh, degree of determining what their diet is going to be. So it's possible that there was some kosher products 
that were produced at Pompeii and maybe even some kosher wine. If any of you are interested in some of those references, I'm happy to talk to you after the break. And we'll conclude, because I know we're, we're now out of time, we're gonna conclude with what I think is by far the most fascinating uh, piece of Jewish, a trace of Jewish evidence in Pompeii, which is a charcoal graffito, charcoal inscription, that was written on one of the buildings shortly after the city was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius. And it turns out that uh, it seems that after the city was destroyed, some people who were successful at fleeing were able to come back, were able to analyze, or kind of look, not analyze, dig through some of the old homes, see, are any of my things left? And one such person seems to have been a Jewish person, probably a Jewish man, who came back, saw the house that he had once inhabited, totally devastated, and ended up taking a piece of charcoal from the ash and destruction and wrote on the walls, see the words? Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow, what a fascinating biblical reference there in Pompeii. Clearly this Jewish man who had survived the destruction of the city by fire and the eruption of a volcano, uh, when he came back to the city in the immediate aftermath of its destruction, felt to refer to the biblical story of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, uh, two cities that were destroyed by fire from heaven in the book of Genesis. Uh, that does suggest that at least some, not all, remember some Jews were fairly well integrated into the Roman world, but at least some Jews saw the destruction of Pompeii as God's retribution for the Romans having destroyed the Jerusalem temple nine years earlier. And we know this is the case not only from this fascinating little graffito, Sodom and Gomorrah, but there's a Jewish text from this period called the Sibylline Oracles, uh, where it describes the destruction of Pompeii at the, at the, at the, by the fires of Mount Vesuvius as God's retribution on the Romans for destroying his house in Jerusalem. Uh, that's a fascinating Jewish interpretation, first century Jewish interpretation of the destruction of Pompeii. So if you ever get a chance to read Sibylline Oracle 4, the whole oracle is, is framing the destruction of Pompeii as God's revenge, uh, which again, not all Jews felt, but at least some Jews did. So in conclusion, this is the final slide. In conclusion, uh, between all of the historical and archeological evidence for the presence of Jews in first century Rome, and the really intriguing bits of evidence for some Jew of Jews being in first century Pompeii before its destruction, together this evidence gives us some really fascinating glimpses into the experience of an ethnic minority community in Rome in the aftermath of the first revolt. We see Judean slaves in Roman households, some women being forced into prostitution, with others, some men being forced into gladiatorial games. We see some Jews being involved in local businesses and industries, and even local politics. We have some Jews who are intermarrying with Romans, like Claudia Esther, right? We have some Jews who are trying to maintain their dining and right, keeping a kosher lifestyle, even though they are definitely an ethnic minority group within a larger Roman context. And we have some Jews who also see Vesuvius as God's retribution for the Roman destruction of the Jerusalem temple. A fascinating diversity of dynamics of uh, what it's like for this ethnic minority group to be in this area, the heart of the Roman Empire, in the aftermath of the First Revolt. Thank you very much. <laughs>